morning. The last couple of weeks you've been looking at the book of Exodus and hopes of better understanding the gospel because it has its roots there. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 3, the passage Robert's going to read for us now. This is Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Robert. Let's pray together. Dear God, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts and minds would be acceptable to you now. Please, I pray, pour your spirit out on us now as we consider your word. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start with a couple of questions this morning. Uh, do you know God? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? No. Let me encourage you to answer yes to that question because the scriptures assure us that we do know God. Prophet Jeremiah, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Not only in the scriptures do we know God, in the Bible God identifies himself with the knowledge that certain people have of him. He says over and over again, I'm the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Today we might say, I'm the God of Mary Jane or Craig or Jennifer, in exactly the same way. We know him truly. So, frequently, I will ask students, tell me about God. What's he like? 
And usually the first answer they'll give me is, well, he's the creator. And then I'll go, yeah, that's true. God has made everything that is. The universe declares his power and his glory. But it's not the answer to the question that I'm asking. I'm not asking, what did God do? I'm asking, what's he like? Who is he? He's my loving Father in heaven who chose me, adopted me, redeemed me, and is changing me even now. He is my dear brother, Jesus Christ, who became him a human being and died so that he could redeem me. He is the Holy Spirit who lives and works in me to make me more like Christ and to reassure me that he loves me and that I really do know him. God is just like Jeremiah says he was. He is just, righteous, and loving. And then comes the really hard question, right? How do you know? <laughs> How do you know who God is? Because Knowing who God is, figuring out who he is, isn't like a math problem. You know how math problems work. You have a basic set of principles, and then you deduce an answer from those things. That's not like knowing God or like knowing any other person, for that matter. In order to know God, we need to meet him. He needs to be revealed to us in his word, in his son, in his Holy Spirit. We have what people used to call an epiphany, a revelation of God to us. Today we want to look at God's epiphany revelation to Moses before the burning bush in hopes of better understanding why don't we know him better than we do <laughs> and how can we hope to. Perhaps the biggest obstacle to knowing God better is your normal routine. Look in verses 2 through 4. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, and God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Moses had left the royal life in Egypt behind him. He had settled down to the life of a shepherd and apparently would have contentedly lived that life for the rest of his life until he saw the burning bush. And if he hadn't seen one, he may have happily remained a shepherd forever. But there it was. And so the scriptures say he turned aside. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but those who are assure me that the word that's translated turned aside here meant this was not Moses' normal plan. It's not as if he had two options for heading home and today he just decided to go this way. No, he turned aside from what he had planned in order to see what was going on. Uh, and turning aside, for most of us, is a hard thing to do. 
uh, a little C.S. Lewis to explain what I mean here. Uh, this is a passage from the Screwtape letters. They are letters from a senior demon, Screwtape, to a junior demon, Wormwood. All you need to know in order to understand what I'm about to read is that the patient is the person who's being tempted, uh, our father below is Satan, and the enemy is Jesus. The trouble about argument is that it moves the whole struggle onto the enemy's own ground. He can argue too. Whereas in really practical propaganda of this kind I'm suggesting, he has been shown for centuries to be greatly the inferior of our father below. By the very act of arguing, you awake the patient's reason. And once it's awake, who can foresee the result? Even if a particular train of thought can be twisted so as to end in our favor, you will find that you've been strengthening in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and withdrawing his attention from the stream of immediate sense experiences. Your business is to fix his attention on the stream. Teach him to call it real life and don't let him ask what he means by real. Remember, he is not, like you, a pure spirit. Never having been a human, oh, that abominable advantage of the enemies, you don't realize how enslaved they are to the pressure of the ordinary. I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day, as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt to defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. The enemy presumably made the counter-suggestion you, you know how one can never quite overhear what he says to them? That this was more important than lunch. At least I think that must have been his line, for when I said quite, in fact, much too important to tackle at the end of the morning, the patient brightened up considerably. And by the time I had added much better to come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway to the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past. And before he had reached the bottom of the steps, I had got into him an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life, by which he meant the bus and the newsboy, was enough to show him that all that sort of things just couldn't be true. He knew he had had a narrow escape, and in later years he was fond of talking about that inarticulate sense of actuality which is our ultimate safeguard against the aberrations of mere logic. He is now safe in our Father's house. You begin to see the point? The biggest obstacle to seeking God for him and for us is that 
we are slaves to our daily routine. We do not stop to consider what's going on because we're just too busy. We need something to interrupt us. We need something to turn us aside. We need a burning bush. Tim Keller used to be pastor of one of our sister churches up in New York City, defines a burning bush as anything that contradicts the view of reality that you already have. And if this is so, burning bushes can take all sorts of different forms. An inexplicable event can be a burning bush. Here, Moses sees a bush burning in the wilderness. Is that unusual? Yes. But it's not inexplicable. There is a forest fire going on in southwest Colorado right now, started by lightning. So, if an atheist empiricist happens to see a bush burning in the wilderness, it's not going to rattle him. Uh, he probably won't turn aside, and Moses wouldn't have either. But this bush, this one was different. The bush was burning, but it wasn't burning up. And that's not supposed to happen. So it got Moses' attention, and he turned aside. Inexplicable persons can be burning bushes, too. Uh, Tim Keller, once again. When he was pastoring Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, met a woman who was a first-time visitor in their church, and he asked, him, asked her how she had heard about the church and got this story. She had been a, a broker in one of the firms in New York, had made a mistake that cost the firm a lot of money. So she got called in before the powers that be, thinking, I'm going to be fired. But her boss stood up for her. He said, no, I did not give her the oversight she needed. I did not give her the information that she needed. This was not her mistake. It was mine. And because he stuck up for her, she didn't get fired. <laughs> and because he was a senior fellow in the firm, he didn't get fired either. And on the way out, she had to ask him, okay, why? Why'd you do that for me? And he kept trying to make it seem small. Not a big deal. Glad to help. Don't let it worry you. But she kept after him. Why'd you do this? And he finally said, I'm a Christian. And because Jesus took the blame for me, I feel I should at least at times take the blame for other people. Huh. This rocked her. In her mind, the gospel made people blamers. But this man had taken the blame for her. And her first question to him was, where do you go to church? A burn, he was a burning bush for her. An inexplicable thought can be a burning bush too. Thank you. <laughs> a while back, Jack Miles wrote an article entitled, Religion Makes a Comeback, Belief to Follow. In it, he tries to answer a big question. Is there a path, he asks, that a postmodern person can take to a religion that they really can put into practice? And he says it like this. 
Religion has always been, amongst other things, a response to the intellectual inadequacy of the human species. Neither individually nor collectively can we know all that we need to know, much less all that we might wonder about. Recalling that fact and taking full note of the current state of secular doubt at the highest intellectual levels, a man or woman who decides to practice a religion may not do so to acknowledge the mystery of religion, but to acknowledge first the mystery in response to which religion has come into being, and second, the felt necessity, somewhat mysterious in itself, to live a moral life even when the grounds of morality cannot be known. Now that's really wordy, I know. What he's simply saying is this, I'm secular, we're secular, and as secularists, we believe that there is no foundation for morality. It's just what you believe in the end. If our worldview is true, moral foundations don't exist. Neither does beauty. It's just chemistry. Neither does human value either. According to what I believe, they don't exist. But I know that they do <laughs> because I live them out every day. Miles is completely out of screw tape's control. He's not thinking about the bus or the newsboy. His mind is engaged. He's thinking, in my beliefs, there are no rooms for these things. But in my life, they're undeniable. Maybe I need to reconsider my beliefs. An inexplicable thought can be a burning bush. So too can trouble. Look around you, just a moment. You look good, don't you? How many of you work out? I do, believe it or not. You know? How many of you got good grades when you were in school? How many of you are successful? <laughs> Fewer people here making that claim. How many of you are thinking, I can do life if I'm smart, if I work hard, I can master it. The trouble with this kind of belief is that you can do all of those things and you can do them right and still encounter trouble. You can lose a job. You can get cancer. And when you do, that reality can smash your belief in your own competence. You can't be your own master. You can't be your own savior. You can't be your own Lord. Trouble can be a burning bush. Emptiness can too. Cynthia Heimel writes for New York Times Magazine writes about famous people that she knew before they became famous and what becoming famous did to them. And she says, without exception, it made them more like jerks, <laughs> more angry, more rude, more difficult to get along with. And she concludes her article with this statement. I believe when God wants to play a really rotten joke on you, he grants you your heart's deepest wish 
and then giggles merrily as you realize suddenly you still want to kill yourself. Now, does God do that? No. Does success often make people feel that way? Absolutely. Indeed, success and the emptiness that it can follow may be the most powerful burning bush of all. It could be that this is happening to you now. If so, turn aside. If Moses saw the burning bush and thought, you know, if I don't get the flock back home by 6 o'clock, uh, yeah, I'm going to lose my job, the story would have been different. You have to take your burning bushes seriously. You have to turn aside. You have to consider them. And this is just as true of getting to know God better as it is of getting to know him the first time. If you're happily strolling along with Jesus, content with what little knowledge you have of him right now, you may stay there unless something gets your attention. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if you don't know Jesus as well as you'd like to, it's because you're not trying hard enough. That's not my point at all. It may be because your view of the gospel is still a little faulty. The average Christian will readily say, Jesus is my savior, he is my meaning, he is my identity, he is my Lord. But then along comes a career failure, and you realize, I thought Jesus was my meaning in life, but it was really my job. You thought, I am saved by what he does, not by what I do. But along comes a burning bush, and you discover that's not really what I feel at all. I got a call several years ago from one of my best friends in the world, Dennis. He called me to tell me that his youngest teenage daughter, unmarried, was pregnant. And he asked me to pray for her and for him. And he said, you know, now I'm going to find out how much I really believe all the things I've been saying all these years. You thought, I know God. But then the th you thought, the God that I know would never let something like this happen. It's a burning bush. The problem here isn't God. It may be our view of him. Look again in verses 4 and 5. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. On one hand, God says to Moses, Moses, Moses. In Hebrew, doubling something emphasizes it. If you want to say the mother of all wars in Hebrew, you say the war war. <laughs> uh, if you double a personal name, it means affection, intimacy, 
intensity. Like when Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Or David says to his son, Absalom, my son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, would that I had died instead of you. When God says to Moses, 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 he's calling him closer. On the other hand, at the same time, God is warning him, don't come too close. Feel the contradiction here? Reminds me of a girlfriend that I had when I was in high school. I want you closer. Stay away. That's what's happening here. God is showing Moses who he is. He is, as John described him in the book of Revelation, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. And the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a, a furnace, and the voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. God doesn't say to Moses, I am who you want. He says, I am who I am, and you cannot know me without taking your shoes off. This is the part that most of us want to skip, right? You ever hear somebody say, I would never believe in a God who, and then fill in the blank, presumes to tell me who I can sleep with, presumes to tell me what I can do with my money, tells me I should deny myself to take up my cross and follow him daily, whatever. We say, I'd never take my shoes off for a God like that. And God replies, you will never know me fully until you do. God's holy. We are not. He calls us as he called Moses. Mark, Mark, Mary Jane, Mary Jane, Greg, Greg. He wants us to draw nearer to him. But the problem is how to do that without being destroyed by his holiness. We get a hint <laughs> on how to do this here in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Every time an angel gets worshipped in the Bible, he responds by saying, don't worship me, worship God, I'm not God. But here we have an unusual figure, not just an angel, but the angel of the Lord, one who speaks as God in the midst of fire, one who commands Moses' worship. This, I think, is Christ himself. And over and over in the Old Testament, not just here, the only way to approach God is with a sacrifice. Something is killed and put into the fire. 
The New Testament tells us why. Jesus sacrificed himself. He was destroyed so that we would not have to be. So that we can have the holiness of God in us without being consumed by it. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and in verse 19, he says to them, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. You understand? The only way to know the Father is through the Son. In Him, the fullness of God is revealed to us. Through Him, we become, at the same time, something unusual. Martin Luther used to be famous for using this phrase. We are simil justus and peccator. At the same time, justified in God's sight, even while we are still sinners in our hearts. In a moment, we're going to gather around the Lord's table to sacrifice, to, to celebrate that sacrifice one more time. But before we do, let's pray together. Dear God, thank you once again for not hiding yourself from us, for not turning your back on us as we deserve. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word, in your Son, and in your Holy Spirit. Please, we pray, make us know you better. Draw us nearer to you through the work of your Son and our brother, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.